May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A few months ago, I was in the attic of my house going through some boxes, and I found a box of old keepsakes that had belonged to my maternal grandmother. She's been gone now for over a decade, and I hadn't looked at this box since, since presumably we had cleaned out her house. And in it were some of her writings, of which she did many, some of her favorite books. And then under those things, I saw an old bottle of perfume that had once belonged to her. And so I did what I imagine many of you would have done in that moment, which was to un- un- take off the top and bring it to my nose. And what happened next has probably also happened to you in your life, which was a rush of memories, of visceral ones. The smell of my grandmother, something I didn't think I would ever experience again, having totally forgotten about this bottle. The way that it felt to be in a room with her, the way her hands looked, all of that in one instant, unbidden. The connections between memory and smell has long fascinated us as people. And this week, I went in in search of some study about this connection, prompting my mind to remember what my body clearly already knew about how deeply these senses are combined for us. And what I'm about to say next, I gave with a disclaimer that I know absolutely nothing about brain science. (laughs) But I did run some of this by one of our our neurologists at the 9 o'clock, and he confirmed for me the fact that our sense of smell is handled through our olfactory bulb which is a structure in the very front of our brain. And odors have a direct route to our limbic system where our amygdala and hippocampus is housed. And all of this sends immediate responses to the rest of our body. As I was reminded, all other senses go through the thalamus. They have some steps of processing that they go through before it communicates with the rest of our body, but the smell has a direct route. And what I also learned this week is that smell is the only fully developed sense that a fetus has in the womb. And this actually remains the strongest sense of a child until the age of 10 when vision takes over. All of this going to show us that even since before we were born, emotion and memory and smell are stored together for us. There is a connection between smell and memory that I first noticed a few years ago in the gospel that we just heard. And here the disclaimer I'll give for this is that nowhere in the gospel of John does the writer explicate what I'm about to say. So I take some imaginative liberties in my interpretation here, but I think there's sound. This is a post-resurrection appearance, and the disciples have gone back to what they did before they ever started following Jesus, which was to go fishing. They're out there fishing, and interestingly, we hear in all four Gospels that the disciples caught no fish 
without the help of Jesus. And indeed, on this night, they fail again, catching no fish. And it's a space now between night and day where the story begins. The boat is out rocking on the water, and then Peter smells something. He smells a charcoal fire that was burning on the shore just a hundred yards away. And I imagine what happened for Peter was similar to what happened to me in the attic a few months ago, which was a rush of visceral, unbidden memories of the last time he was near a charcoal fire, which was in the courtyard of the high priest, where he stood warming himself by it following Jesus' arrest, where he denied three times that he was a follower of Jesus. I imagine all of this going through Peter's mind and body as he rocked there in the boat. And then the story speeds up. The so-called beloved disciple is the first to recognize that it is Jesus on the shore by the fire, Jesus who has spoken to them. And then Peter, we hear in a very curious passing detail, we hear is completely naked in the boat. And we have to wonder if perhaps as hearers, we are called to remember Adam in the story of creation and the shame of his nakedness. But putting that aside, Peter does the somewhat counterintuitive move of putting on clothes and then jumping in the water. <laughs> he jumps into the Sea of Tiberias and he swims to the shore, having a full body experience of the resurrected Lord. He has smelled the fire. He has seen Jesus. His stomach growls at the smell of the fish and the sight of the bread. His heart is pounding from the swim, and he gets to the shore. And remember, he is now soaking wet, which is how he will remain for the rest of the story that we hear. He gets there, and the disciples bring in the fish. They bring in the boat, and they all get onto the shore. And they have this scene then I referred to a few weeks ago on Easter Day of the breakfast on the beach story, which is delightful in how completely awkward it must have been. There is no celebration here. It's surprisingly subdued, given that they are eating with the resurrected Jesus. Surprisingly calm, given that they just caught 153 fish. But the Gospel writer tells us that they sat and said nothing. Jesus passed out the bread and the fish, and he didn't make one comment. No giving of thanks, no remembrance, no how are you. I don't imagine that what happened there was an easy silence. But it was a moment where they all acknowledged that no words could live up to what needed to be said. Instead, the movements and motions of their bodies would symbolize their forgiveness of themselves and of each other, of their relationships restored again through sharing a meal. All throughout this Easter season, and really for the past few months, I have been taken with the physicality of our faith, with what it means to worship 
a God who was resurrected in wounded bodily form, what it meant for Thomas to need the physical confirmation of Jesus's wounds last week, what it meant for Peter to smell and taste and see Jesus, all of these things to bring back relationship with Jesus. The former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, reflected on this physicality, saying, our faith is material. All of our lives and all of our faith is first mediated through our bodies. And then our faith is made up of gesture, of sound, of habit, of place. So with all of this, all of our physicality reflected on living through a pandemic, all of our worship of the word made flesh, I have to ask myself then, well then what next? What comes from this truth? And if we stay with the last encounter in our gospel, we begin to see Jesus showing us. Breakfast is finished and Peter and Jesus start talking. And three times Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? And three times with increasing exasperation, Peter says, yes. This, of course, is an unmistakable correlation to the last time they were around a fire together, when Peter denied Jesus three times. Now a new fire, and Jesus gives Peter another chance. And the result of this second, third, fourth chance that Peter gets is the reminder of what his work is. After everything that has gone wrong and everything that has gone right, Jesus reminds Peter that the work now is to feed Jesus's sheep. Peter wasn't told, your commission now is to worship or to reflect or to lead or even to believe. His mission now was to care for the physical well-being of his fellow followers. And then Jesus speaks the last words that he will speak in this gospel to the disciples, which mirror the very first words that he spoke. Follow me. Follow me, Peter and the disciples, not just with your words or your beliefs, but with your bodies. Join me, Jesus says, to care for the most vulnerable, to tend the sheep, to feed the lambs, to feed those who follow me and those who have yet to join. And so may we, like Peter, smell and taste and see and hear of God's love and forgiveness for us. And may that lead us then to follow where our embodied faith points, which is to care for each other and our world, to feed each other, to fulfill the promises of our faith, not only with our lips, but in our lives. Amen.